Well, March 2017, um, March 2017, a 14-year-old boy and his family come into the state park. They pay $10 and come into the state park in Arkansas called the Crater of the Diamond State Park. And about 30 minutes into their exploring of the state park, they were walking along a riverbed and the 14-year-old boy looks down and he sees something glittering in the water and he picks it up. And to his surprise, there is a diamond, a 7.44 carat diamond. Get your mind and mind on that, ladies, on your ring, on your finger. And the greatest news, it was just sitting right there in the river bend for the plain eye to see. But the greatest thing about it was that the park had this finder's keeper's policy. And so the kid got his college paid for and everything else, I guess, with the, the diamond that he found in plain sight. And you know, that's not so much different than the person who comes to God's word. The person who comes to God's word in search for treasure. Treasure of a different kind. The evidence of God's attributes is waiting right for us in the scriptures for us to find. There are so many gems that are in the scriptures that we can know who God is and how he's revealed himself. And we can unearth these gems as we read scripture. In the spring, we started in January, and we stopped in May. We took Genesis 1 through 11, and we um, mined Genesis 1 through 11. And if you know Genesis 1 through 11, it is the foundation. It's the beginning, and so there's so many important truths. There's so many important things, and there is a lot of area, and there's a lot of part to explore in Genesis 1 through 11, the creation that God creates this world out of nothing by the word of his power and he gives us good gifts every day it's good and he gives us the good gift of each other and relationships and a creation that is good and so we see the peaks in Genesis 1 and 2 of God's good creation for us and then we come to Genesis 3 and we see the valley we see man being tempted by the evil one Satan and falling into sin And all the consequences of sin. And really you see from that point you see the consequences of sin from Genesis 3 through 11. And yet you see things that are still good. We see even after the fall that God is still good and he's still blessing his people. You see the rise of civilization in chapter 4. You see Cain. And as bad as Cain was, God still blessed civilization even though there was great moral decline in that period. And then we come to the end of that and we see the flood where God judges the whole earth and yet he is gracious and he spares Noah and his family. And they begin to repopulate the earth again and God blesses them in chapter 9 and they re- Repopulate, and you see nations and races, and then you come to the Tower of Babel. And instead of them worshiping the God of the heavens, they come and they make a name for themselves. And that's where we left it, and then we went to the book of James. But I want to come back to it this morning and really through what are we, what are we in the fall now, whatever this is. Um, We're going to try to unpack Genesis 12 through 50, but I want to spend one Sunday walking back through Genesis 1 through 11. I'm going to do it maybe in a different way. I'm not just going to go chapter to chapter. I just gave you a summary of creation and fall and God's hope for us and redemption. But I want to show you and unearth for you the gem of who God is. 
See, we can miss in Genesis 1 through 11 and all the incredible storylines and all the questions of life, who we are, where we're from, why we're here, how do we get the nations, races, and religion, do we have any hope in a broken world? Those are great questions to answer. But one of the temptations that we face when we come to Scripture and there's all these gems, we fail to see the seven carat diamonds right in front of us on the riverbed by seeing who God is. So what I want to do this morning is take you through some big diamonds in Genesis 1 through 11 and show you the thread of who God is. So we're kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, here's what God reveals about this world, but who is this God? Who is this God that is so good? Who is this God that's a sovereign ruler? So that's what I want to do. So I want to show you five things and I want to show you the response that we ought to have to a God who reveals himself. So the, the idea this morning is this, that God displays his character through the world that he creates. God is going to brilliantly display his character through the world that he creates. And I want to show you those diamonds, those gems in Genesis 1 through 11. And so, turn there. Uh, we'll be moving around. We don't you don't have the screen if you really want to. If I'm spouting out scripture and I'm looking back there, the, the passages will likely be back there. But let me give you a number of characteristics of God, attributes of God. Some of those attributes we can share, we can reflect, and some of those we can't. The first one is this. This is who your God is. God is self-existent and self-sufficient. Genesis 1.1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, the Bible assumes God, God's existence before he creates the universe and the world that he creates. His existence is assumed in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning of creation, God was already there. And the point is this about God's existence, being self-existent and self-sufficient. It means this. It means he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anyone he doesn't need air, he doesn't need food, he doesn't need water, he doesn't need to go work out, he doesn't need to go get a haircut, he doesn't need a salary, he doesn't need a house, he doesn't need you, he doesn't need me. He has always eternally been self-sufficient. He has always eternally been here and he's always been self-existent. This is the God of the Bible. He reveals himself in the first word say, I'm already here and I've always been here. See, God is self-existent. You see this in other places in the scriptures. In John chapter 5, you see Jesus saying this, as the Father has life, keyword in himself. Not from anybody else or anything else, but God has, the Father has life in himself. So has God granted that the Son has life in himself. And this is what we read all the way through the New Testament about Jesus. That Jesus has always existed. And he holds all things together by the word of his power. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning of creation, there was, God was there. In the beginning, the word became flesh. The word was with God. The word was God. Christ has existed. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit has existed from eternity. Take another sip of your coffee. It's good coffee this morning. It's always good coffee. And think about that. Think about the fact that God is eternal. And he is self-existent. And he's also self sufficient. You see in the book of Acts, Paul talking to the, to the people of Athens. The people of Athens were like the intellectuals of the day. 
There's the Stoic philosophers and the Epicurean philosophers and they had all these temples and Paul comes in to Athens and he observes, he spends time looking at this city and all that this city does and believes and all these temples made to the gods that they made themselves. It's a good observation, by the way, as you look at this world, study this world so you know how to reach it with the gospel. And so this is what Paul's doing. I think we have the text Um, Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. We don't. We don't have it. Well, here's what he says. (laughs) I'll summarize. See how good I am or not. He says, God is not a man. God is not made as a man. He doesn't need temples made with human hands. He is unchangeable. This is who God is. He is not a man that he needs to be made. And so Paul makes a case for the self existence and self-sufficiency of God and maybe you're sitting here and you're saying so what like I when I was in college I studied all this and I figured it out and I'm good with it um but maybe you're more inclined to these kinds of things so what why does it matter there's there's really a couple of categories as to why it matters theologically and philosophically if you want to say it that way it also matters for your day-to-day that God is self-existent and self-sufficient you ever had the question who made God, right? Because God made us, so we go through this cause and effect. Well, who made God? This is telling us, the first verse of the Bible is telling us, no, 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 God has always existed. There was, God was there. He's eternal. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need you or me. So who made God? He is not made. He has always been. He is the uncaused cause. Think about that. He is the uncaused cause. And it also answers, answers the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Ever thought about that? Ever had that question? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why are you here? Why is this here? Why is the world here? And there's really three options. The world is here because it created itself. And frankly, that's the the belief of atheism, that bang, everything happened and somehow it created itself. That's one option. The other option is everything is eternal. But we know that's not true. Science would say that's not true. That everything is eternal and it's always been here and it always will be here. We know that experientially not to be true. But the third option is this. Something eternal, God, self-existent, made all of this. And that's what we believe as Christians. That God is eternal and he's self-sufficient. And he is self-existent and he made all that there is. That's the belief of the Christian. And maybe you've heard the other question that's asked. Well, God just made us because he needed somebody to be around. He didn't have anybody. No, God has existed in community, Father, Son, and Spirit for eternity. Try to wrap your mind around that. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, all right? Sorry, kids. You don't need to smoke a pipe. Um, But think about that. I know I'm launching out into some pretty deep and heavy things, and we'll come back a little bit here, but that's an important, these are important truths to know that God is self-existent and self-sufficient. And you go, man, you know, I figured that out in college and the people I work with don't care about that stuff. We're just trying to get through our day. Here's why it matters to every one of our every day. See, we can't reflect this about God. We can't reflect his self-existence, his self-sufficiency, the fact that he is eternal. But dadgummit, we try, don't we? We try every day. In our flesh, we are independent. We're Texans, right? We are independent people. We can do it ourselves. And this is the challenge. And guess what? You weren't the first to to do that. Remember Satan? God's highest of creation, what did he do? You know, 
I will ascend to the throne. I will, I will. Adam and Eve, you know what? I think there's more out there for us. I think we'll take and I think we'll get more knowledge because God is holding out on us. We can handle it ourselves. Remember Cain sins against his brother, kills his brother. And God has told him, you're going to be a wanderer. You're not going to go into one place. And what does he do? He says, thanks but no thanks. I'll do what I want. We believe that we are self-sufficient, that we are independent. And it often gets us in the same kind of trouble that it did for Satan as it did for Adam and Eve, as it did for Cain, as it did for the people of Babel. Anybody own their own business in here? I'm looking around going, yep, I'm seeing some people that own their own business. The great thing about owning your own business, I hear, is that you have freedom. You have freedom to run your own schedule, you have freedom to make your own decisions, and that's why many people get into it, and many people are gifted at that, many people are gifted at being the one who runs everything, but one of the challenges that you'll hear from business owners if they own their own businesses is the burden of it. See, the cost is all yours, the burden is all yours, you have to cover your own benefits. And spiritually speaking, sometimes what happens to us is that we try to live spiritually as if we're self-employed. And, and it doesn't work. We are a people that are dependent on God for every breath that we take. We are dependent upon God for all things in life, especially the fact that we are born into sin and we have a sin problem that we can't fix ourselves. So we often act like we are spiritually self-employed before God because of sin. We can't carry or the cost of the burden of our sin in and of ourselves. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is, is that God takes that burden away through the death of his son. This is what we believe. So C3, are we spiritually trying to live self-employed lives? We can't do it. So Genesis 1-1 teaches us that he and he alone is self-existent and self-sufficient. It kind of leads into the next point, a related point, and here it is. Um, he is sovereign over all things. That God is the sovereign ruler over all things. Here's what that means. It means that God has no limits in his ability. That's his power. He has unlimited power. And he has no limits in his authority. That he is sovereign. So he has unlimited ability and unlimited authority. He is the sovereign ruler over all things. And I want you to see this. And so take your Bible there in Genesis chapter 1 over and over again. I want you to see his unlimited ability to act. I mean, this is incredible when you just take it at face value. value. And in verse 3 in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there, let there be light... And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Listen, here's the refrain through every day of creation that you see. Every day of creation, you said, let, God said, let there be, he spoke, and there was light, and there was the heavens, and there was the sky, and there was the sun, the moon, the stars, and it was so. I want you to think about the magnitude of that truth and that kind of power to simply speak something out of nothing. God speaks 
and things happen. God speaks and all the creation is built off of what he says. And then it says, and it was so. That's an incredible amount of power. That is omnipotent power that God has that we don't have. That is sovereign power. You see, God spoke all things into existence out of nothing. And then he commands his creation. You ever watch Iron Man where, you know, Iron Man, he takes his little screen, like the big computer screen, and he's messing with stuff. He's a brilliant guy, and he just pulls things over here, and he talks to his computer. In my mind, I think of God and going, okay, I spoke this into existence. I'm going to put that water right there. I'm going to put the sky right here. I'm going to put the sun over here. I'm going to put the moon over here. He commands what he creates. He's going to put all these things into place. He's going to speak man out of dust. That's power. That's sovereign power. He also commands Adam. Once he creates Adam out of dust, he commands him. He puts him in the garden and he commands him. This is your God. He is a sovereign ruler. That's an important important truth for us. He commands his creation. But look what we do with that. You think, about, you think about that and you think about one person in the Bible. Remember, God gave dominion to man over all things. He, gave, he made man a steward of all things and then he fell into sin. But what do you see with Jesus? Remember, Jesus is in the boat and he's asleep and there's a storm. That'd be nice. He's in the boat and there's this big storm in the sea. Ever been on the sea? Raging waves on a sea. And he's sleeping. And the disciples are freaking out. And they wake him up. And he speaks. He speaks to the winds and the waves. And they calm. And what do the disciples do? They're in awe. And they say, even the winds and the waves obey him. See, we have a sovereign ruler who is all-powerful over all things. This is why it's a logical place. This is why it's a logical place when you see in Scripture the place in which God is. He's on a throne. He's on a throne because that's a logical place for him to be as a sovereign creator, a self-existent sovereign creator of all things. But as I think of Genesis 1 through 11, and I think about this sovereign creator who is self-existent, I think about later in, in that section, I think about the Tower of Babel. What do they do at the Tower of Babel? This is where it applies to you and me. You know, God said, come let us make man in our image. You know what they do at the Tower of Babel? Come, let us. That's what they say. They say, come let us. Look at it in Genesis 11. I keep thinking it's up there. Sorry about that. Genesis 11 Here's what God's word says. The people, they say, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower. They're so strong. With its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for God? No. Let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What was God's plan? God's plan was to disperse them over all the earth. That's what they were supposed to be doing, to multiply and fill all the earth. And they said, no, we're going to come together. We're really strong, and we're going to come together and defy God and build a strong temple 
all the way up to the heavens as if saying, look at us, God, and look at God's response. (laughs) This is some sarcasm, I think, here. Verse 7, come, let us, this is God, Trinitarian thought from Genesis chapter 1, come let us go down there. So God's up here, and they're down below. Let us go down there from the heavens, right? And confuse their language. Excuse me. Where am I at? I need some reading glasses. Sorry, verse 5. The Lord came down to, to see, as if he couldn't see it from where he was, the city and the tower which the children uses the word children. <laughs> the child, these little children of man have built. Listen, God is a sovereign ruler over all. And we think we're so powerful and sovereign over all things. And we use and wield our power in all kinds of different ways. How'd that work out for the folks of Babel? And how does that work out for you and me when we say, no, I've got this. No, I'm sovereign over my own life, God. Thanks. But here's the question, and this is a scary question for us. If God has unlimited power, okay, if he has unlimited power and rule, there's an important question that's coming next. What kind of God is he? And here's your next point. He is a good God. He's a good God all the time. He is good all the time. You know, The example of that diamond in the riverbed that was plain to see. One of the first characteristics that you see about God is his goodness. And you see it all over the riverbank of Genesis chapter 1. And every day, he, he creates something out of nothing. And what does he say? He says it's good. It's good because he's good. And it was good, 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 and it was very good. And then he blesses his creation over and over and over. The idea of God being good is that in him, speaks about Jesus, there is light and there is no darkness in God. He is always good. He's unchangeably good, immutably good, infinitely good in all that he does. And this is your God. That's an important thing when you have a sovereign God who has unlimited power. You think about the countries, the third world countries of our world, and a new person comes to power. And the first question is, what kind of man is he? What kind of person is he? See, our God has unlimited ability and unlimited power, but he is good. He is always good. And the Bible, in the Bible, it shows up all the way through it. Even after the fall, there is goodness from God that comes to Adam and Eve. He doesn't slay them right there, which he said, you will die. In his grace, he lets them continue. Even with Cain, he's good to him in spite of Cain's shaking his fist at God. Think about Noah, even the sin of Noah. And even after that, God blessed him and he multiplied. See, God is a good God. And his goodness shows up all over the pages of Scripture. His goodness actually tells us of our need. In Romans 1, which is a really rough chapter, it talks about all the sin of the world and how people have abandoned God and went their own way and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. It says people are out without excuse. 
Because they've seen the goodness of God. They've seen his attributes and who he is. So they are without excuse. The way in which we know our need for Christ is because he is good and we know we are not. Even in times of deep trouble in our life, we think of verses like Romans 8, 28. God works things for what? Good to those who are called according to his purpose. All things for good. Genesis 50, we're going to get to it. In Joseph's life, what men meant for evil, God meant for good. And the ultimate goodness that we see in the scripture comes in the gospels. People of God have been waiting and waiting for centuries for Messiah to come. And the angel comes. And what does he say? I give you good news of great joy. This day, in the city of David, there's born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And then we see in Titus chapter 3, the good news of the gospel. That Christ would die on a cross for our sins. See, God is good. And he gives good gifts. And the greatest gift is Christ and his goodness toward us. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know that most often answered response to the question, hey, if God asks you, how are you going to get into heaven? The, you know what the answer is? The answer is, well, I've been a good person. I've done more good than I have bad. And the Bible says only God is good. And so think about that, friend. If you're here this morning and you think, I don't know, what, how would I answer that question? I, maybe that's the way I would answer it. I've just done more good than bad. And the Bible would say, no. You're not good enough. Only God is good. This is why God sent his son Christ. And the good news of the gospel is good for you. But here's the other thing. He calls his people to be good. You know when you drop your kid off for school and say, hey, be good? Or the babysitter, be good, be a blessing. The Bible says that believers ought to be good. Not for goodness sake, but for God's sake. Think about it in Matthew chapter 5. He says, that they, unbelievers, might see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. See, the goodness that comes out of us is a testimony to God's goodness and the grace of the gospel. Let me ask you the question. Do you see the goodness of God all around you? Even COVID-19. Do you see the goodness of God all around you? Think, just think for a minute about your senses. Last week, a friend of ours came from Houston. His name's Kendall, and he's Australian. And so I, just, I like to be around Kendall for a lot of reasons. He's a godly man, um, but I like to listen to his accent, I'll be honest. And uh, we went out to lunch with Kendall, and I've been on three or four mission trips with Kendall. And um, he loves food. He loves the delight of food. Maybe we have a few foodies in here. But to watch him eat something he really enjoys reminds me of the goodness of God and he will say that I mean every time we go eat somewhere it's like a Seinfeld where we we have a discussion about food over in like 14 different ways but last Sunday we were at Jason's Deli and we were eating a good meal and I think we had the, the ice cream that gets us all there right that's why we have kids that's why we go um, and he just started in and he says the word good like good and so it comes out. God is so good. He would give us taste. He would give us, like the little things in life. I want you to think about that in your own life. We often bypass the everyday senses that we have to see a sunset. Maybe we can't. Too many trees. Go to Colorado. 
to what we see and what we touch and what we smell and what we taste and what we eat. I want you to think about the goodness of God and the little things and the big things and really one of the most fundamental elements about walking with God, especially in a difficult, difficult time through our lives, is the question, do I still believe God is good? That's a fundamental question that we ought to be reminding ourselves of all the things that I just said and what the scripture says about God being good even when we can't understand something that's happened in our lives or something awful happens in our lives God is good all the time and all the time God is good well, God is good but he's also some other things and this is a little more challenging for us sometimes God is also holy and he's also just He's a holy God and he's a just God. The idea of being holy is the idea of being pure. He is set apart from sin and he's also devoted, listen to this, this is important, he's devoted to his own honor. He's devoted to his own glory. And so he is holy, holy, holy. He's also just. He's the final, he's the final standard of what is right and he determines what is right and good. So holy and just. We see it in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve before in the garden? Don't take of that tree. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3? This is a holy God that certainly desires relationship with Adam and Eve. He walked in the cool of the day, but he's also holy and he's also just. And he asked them not to take of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. And they take of that. And what happens? Because God is not just loving and doting, he's also at the same time just and holy. They're separated from God. Spiritually separated from God. And then you go to Genesis chapter 5 and what do you see? And they died. And they died. And they died all the way through the chapter. And some people go, how can God be loving? See, God is both loving and he is just. And all that works together in who God is. So in Genesis 3, you see the consequences of sin, and that's really what you see all the way from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, right? You see Adam and Eve falling into sin, and you see consequences from their sin. You see seven or eight things cursed because of their sin, and you and I have to live in that curse right now. We see the curse of death, the graveyard, everyone goes there. We see the curse, child-bearing problems. You see the curse on the ground, you have to work. And then you come to Cain. Cain kills Abel. And God, by his mercy, doesn't kill Cain, but he gives him a mark. And he sends him out. And there's consequences to his sin. There's consequences to the sin of the people of Noah's day, isn't there? There's consequences to the people of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Noah had consequences because of sin. Kids, you have consequences because of sin. Mom and dad, do you remember? You remember the thing when you became a parent that you said you would never say to your kids because you heard it all the time from your own parents? I'm doing this because I love you. Kids, you ever hear that? You have consequences because I love you and I want you to learn from those things. See, God is loving and he is good, but he is also at the same time holy and just. Do you see God as holy and just as well as loving and good? See, God calls us, interestingly, to reflect his holiness in the New Testament. It's something that we can reflect, not like God reflects, not perfectly, but God's will for your life, according to 1 Thessalonians, is what? 
that you be holy, that you live a set-apart life. That's what the Christian life is. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you live a holy life. So, God is holy. But last, he is also merciful and gracious. That's your last point. He is self-existent. He is sovereign. He is holy and just. But he's also merciful and gracious. Aren't you glad? See, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve, which is good. And you see this in Genesis chapter 3, right after. Right after Adam and Eve and fallen into sin, if you'll go there in your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, you're going to see this hope that man has, even right after they sin, even though a holy God is going to give them consequence. Look at this promise that you see in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. See, God is talking to the serpent who has led them into sin. The Satan, the Bible describes the serpent as being, serpent as being Satan. Because you, Satan, have done this, because you've tempted them, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity, that's conflict, strife, between you, that's Satan, and the woman. He's talking to Eve, but he's talking about future, and we know that from other passages in Galatians chapter 4. And between your offspring and her offspring. So there's a godly line, and there's an ungodly line. He, the offspring, shall bruise you on your head, or excuse me, that's Satan. He shall bruise you on your head. That ends up being Christ, and what Christ did... And that's what the Old Testament does, right? It traces from this point forward the line of Christ, the line of Messiah, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is a picture of what many people call the first gospel. The first picture of sin being dealt with that will eventually be dealt with, that there will be one who comes, who deals finally with sin. And this is what we see all the way through the Old Testament. And what does God do? What does God do in Genesis after they sin? He said, surely you will die. And what does he do? Instead of killing them right there, he does what? He kills an animal. The first death that you see in the Bible is him killing an animal. And he covers them, Adam and Eve, with that animal's skin. What did Adam and Eve try to do? They tried to go get their own. They tried to go get leaves and fig coverings as if they could atone for their own sin, as if they could cover their own sin. And God says, no, death has to happen. And he covers their sin. And so you see God's mercy. And it keeps going in Genesis 3. What does God do? He kicks them out of the garden, right? It's a consequence for their sin. He kicks them out. And he puts an angel in front of the tree of life. Do you know that that's a mercy? I want you to just think about this for a minute. It's a mercy that Adam and Eve were going to die and be raised anew rather than live forever in the state of sin. God is even merciful in putting an angel in a judgment. He is merciful to Adam and Eve. And you see his mercy with Cain, and you see his mercy with Noah, and you see his mercy all the way through the book of Genesis. God is merciful and he's gracious. Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 through 8. I'm going to read that for us. Exodus 34. 
I want you to think about the characteristics, the attributes of God in this text. As I read it, Exodus 34, 4 through 8. I got to get there. I can't talk and turn at the same time. Working on it. Excuse me. The Lord, the Lord, a God, listen to it, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's a gracious God. That's a loving God. And that's what you see from Genesis to this point in Exodus. But look what else. But he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You see, God is holy and he is just and he is loving and he's forgiving. He's all of those things in one. You know, some people say how God can't have his cake and eat it too. You can't be in the rational mind, this is where people go. You can't be just and holy and demand a payment for sin and be loving and kind. The only way you can do that is if you just let them off. But then you're not just. And so that's really the question of the Old Testament. It's really the question of the Bible. How can a holy and just and even wrathful God forgive sin of a people who deserve judgment? A people who deserve death. A people who deserve to be punished. Because if he's just, he has to do that. That's what this text is saying. That we have to be punished for our sin. And people do all kinds of things with that. An atheist will say, when they look at the cross, an atheist, actually, not only an atheist, some progressive Christians that don't see Jesus dying in our place, they look at that and say, you know, God, God is not a loving God if he's going to send his son to pay for all of that. What kind of God does that? Well, the Bible says, Jesus says, I came willingly. I willingly died on a cross to satisfy both the justice of God and the wrath of God and his holiness because sin deserves and has to have a payment if God is just and God is holy. But by doing so, it also demonstrates his mercy and his grace to you and me because we deserve the payment of sin that is rightfully ours, that Christ took upon himself as the spotless lamb who was slain for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness or justice of God through him. See, Christ on the cross, solves this dilemma between God's justice and holiness being satisfied because of sin and also maintaining that God is merciful and gracious. We find the answer at the cross. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know that message. That's good news. That's the good news of the gospel. It can change your everything. It can change your eternity you put your faith and trust in Christ. And maybe you're here and you know Christ, but you really struggle with the idea of God being merciful and gracious to someone that you don't think deserves it. 
that's lived their life in a certain way, but they come to the cross. I would encourage you to look at the cross because that's exactly what happened. And maybe you struggle not with mercy and grace, but his justice. Man, that sounds harsh with his justice. And that God is holy. I would encourage you too to look at the cross because holiness and his justice is satisfied at the cross. When I was engaged, or excuse me, before I got engaged, we are dating. And you know the thing about trying when you've been dating for four years? Y'all listen up right here. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Before, before you get engaged, they're never going to come back, the dating couple. So you've been dating for a long time, and so you're trying to figure out how to do this thing without people knowing and being a surprise and all that stuff. And so I, I remember having... Uh, the ring that I got from Melanie, shipped out of state, take notes, shipped out of state, sent back to me, don't have to pay the taxes, don't know if it still works that way. But it came to my house the day I was, the day before, uh, by mail, the day before I was going to go propose. And um, there's a lot of self-disclosure here. Um, And so I remember driving down uh, Highway 35 from Denton to Seguin, and I remember putting that ring on the dashboard of my Nissan Sentra that I wore out five-hour trip for years. And I remember setting that ring on the dashboard. I remember the sun hitting that ring, and don't try this at home. But back then, we, we didn't have a, cam- like a, a video camera on your phone. You had like the flip. Remember the flip thing? And so I'm driving and like filming this thing, just trying to get chronicle the whole deal. And one of the most interesting things about the trip is that I'm trying to drive, and every once in a while, the sun would a ray from the sun would hit that diamond and it would kind of, it's a great driving skills right here, like teaching people how to drive with video, sorry. But the rays of that, the sun would hit that diamond in different ways and different colors and different facets of that diamond would come out. And I would tell you today that that's the way the gospel is. There are so many different facets of God's character in the Bible, these gems that we can unearth, and they don't, they don't contradict one another. They don't contradict one another. I know the finite mind has a hard time understanding them, but if you even look at the book of Exodus, when Moses is seeing the character of God and that he is merciful and loving and then he's just, you know what verse 8 says? It says he fell down and worshiped. You know, sometimes what we do when we look at all the facets of the diamond of God, we say, well, that can't be true if this is true, or this can't be true if that's true. But it all works together. See, the Bible reveals a God who is self-existent, who is sovereign, who is just and holy, and it also shows us a God who is holy and just and merciful and gracious And the fact is, is that we see all of those characteristics and all of those angles of the diamond come out in the cross. In the cross of Christ, God satisfied his wrath against sin and his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. And he satisfied the fact that he is good and that he is gracious and that he is merciful and that he is forgiving. God brilliantly displays his character in his son.
Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for time in it. Many of the truths here that we spoke about and learned about that we see come out of Genesis and our minds sometimes can be contradictory or we wonder how a God can be both just and holy and be loving and gracious but that's who you are and we give you praise that we see all those truths coming out in the good news of the gospel of Christ where a self-existent Christ who is sovereign over all things and holds all things together by the word of his power, demonstrated his justice and demonstrated his mercy on a cross for sinners like me, for sinners like us, that we might have life and know him and worship him for all that he is and follow him for all that he is. We love you and thank you for time together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.